realize this, but some of the best and most popular podcasts are being produced by magazines. BBC History Magazine's podcast, HistoryExtra.com, has seen 150 million downloads of such episodes as The Surprisingly Modern Middle Ages since its start in 2007. Content director Dr. Dave Musgrove shares how this podcast started and why it continues to attract so many listeners. Closer to home, Linda Solomon Wood talks about why Canada's National Observer decided to venture into podcasting with their Race Against Climate Change series, which was nominated for Canadian Journalism Foundation Award. Our project coordinator, Asna Sheikh, shares news about Access Copyright, our member campaign, and our YouTube channel. All this and more in this episode of iHeart Magazines, the podcast of the Magazine Association of BC, sharing the love of making, reading, and today listening to West Coast Magazines. Our first guest, Dr. David Musgrove, is BBC's content director for HistoryExtra.com, a website and podcast, as well as BBC History and BBC History Revealed magazines. David has a PhD in medieval landscape archaeology, is the author of two books, and has written numerous articles on history. David is with me today to talk about BBC's History Extra podcast, now in its 15th year. Welcome to iHeart Magazine's Dave. Hi, Sylvia. Thanks for having me. I hadn't realized podcasts had gone mainstream until a few years back, and it certainly has had a much higher profile since the pandemic. When did you start thinking about doing a podcast tie-in with BBC History magazine? Uh, at the time, I was editing BBC History magazine. As, um, so in 2007, I was uh, about to conduct an interview with a, a very famous um, uh, historian by the name of Professor Sir Ian Kershaw, who's a leading expert on the Third Reich. And I thought, well, it's not many people who get to talk to uh, to, to this guy. He's very important. Uh, he's, he's a leading light in the topic. Why don't I just see if he doesn't mind if I record the conversation? And he said, yeah, that's fine. And I thought, well, there we go. That makes for a podcast. Off we go. And I'd heard of this new thing called podcast, which really wasn't very popular in 2007, if people can cast their mind back that far. And we went from there. How prevalent was podcasting at that time? I'd heard that it was a thing going on, but it really didn't have very much traction at the time. I really don't think many people were, smartphones were obviously around at the time, but weren't anywhere near as, as preponderant as they are today. That's a really good point. What were your original goals for the History Extra podcast? I was in charge of a print magazine at the time, which is still going. BBC History magazine is still very popular. And what I really wanted to do was to give a little bit more to the readers of that magazine to allow them to get into the conversations that we were having with the with the experts and the historians who were contributing to the magazine, but also to find a new stream to market and advertise the magazine. And we were doing really well in the UK. And I thought we had a, co- a content mix that would work well globally and particularly in North America. And I knew that people were listening to podcasts in North America. And I thought, well, this is a way to sort of reach out to them. So it was to give our existing readers something a, a little more, but also as a marketing channel for for pushing the, the magazine's name out elsewhere. What do you attribute to History Extra's extraordinary success? The first thing I'd take it back to our sort of getting in early. We were an early adopter of the technology, which meant we got some really good promotion from the likes of Apple. You know, we were flagged up as a, a podcast of the day or something on, on Apple's podcast channel at the time, which really helped. And we just sort of built from there, getting a, a really good audience. More importantly than that is we've had a really simple proposition with this podcast, which was 
to talk to interesting historians, archaeologists and historical experts, give them the space to discuss their ideas and their and their research in a long form. And that really didn't exist very much. You know, you got maybe a two or three minute interview if you're lucky in a, in a radio segment. You didn't allow people to, to really go into detail about what we're doing. So, so we're going to ask you some questions, but we're going to listen, let you speak for half an hour, 45 minutes. And I think people will be interested in that. And that's what we've stuck with. We've introduced new ideas and, and concepts over the years. But our underlying idea of speaking to people and letting people hear in long form the interesting research from leading experts is, is what we've been all about. I feel that one of the strengths of magazines, both online and print is the long form, that you do give more space to ideas and to reporting and so on. So that's interesting that it's translated quite well, actually, over to podcasting. What was one of the biggest mistakes you feel you've made over the 15 years of the podcast? That's one of those dangerous questions, isn't it? But I'd say back in the early days, I started it without maybe a a huge knowledge of, of audio production. We weren't as rigorous as we could have been and should have been in terms of making sure the audio quality was absolutely spot on in those early days. So we did get some criticism from people who were listening, saying, you know, this sounds really interesting, but it's a bit crackly or, or, you know, it sounds like you're in a bath, that sort of thing. So we very quickly addressed that and and worked out what we had to do and put in place the necessary mechanisms to make sure we were getting decent quality audio. And and that is absolutely crucial if you're going to do a podcast, particularly now with such uh, a lot of competition. So it wasn't long before we had felt that we were able to recruit an audio editor, initially freelance, but then as things picked up, as a paid member of staff at Immediate Media, who the company I work for. And, and that person was tasked specifically with ensuring that the quality that we were putting out was uh, good enough to go into people's ears. That's really interesting. I volunteered for community radio for about eight years. And one of the things that I found very difficult was when someone handed me an audio file to play over the radio. And it was very poor quality. I would just cringe. I'd be like, nobody's going to want to hear this, people. (laughs) So it's really important. I think people underestimate the the real importance of audio. Absolutely. Um, What do you feel are two or three most important aspects magazine publishers should consider when deciding whether to, to produce a podcast? I'd say one of the things that we've always done is to sort of make sure the content we're producing for the podcast Um, fits within the broader editorial commissioning process that you've got. I was talking to this famous professor and and it was going to be the cover feature of the magazine actually back in the day. So I was already doing that work. It fitted into what I was doing. It wasn't particularly adding an extra burden to the workload. Um, If you've got an existing editorial team, obviously they're already doing a bunch of stuff. You need to make sure that it's not a huge burden because you need to be able to commit to doing something with regularity. There's no point in just doing a really a really interesting one-off podcast. I mean, that's fine, but it's not going to do anything for your brand or become a product of any longevity. You've got to be able to feel like you can deliver something either on with regularity, i.e. weekly, monthly, fortnightly, whatever it is, or in a serious format. So say we're going to do eight episodes and then we're going to assess it. But you've got to say we're going to do something of some duration. Otherwise, I really don't think there's any point. So make sure you can commit to it. And the only way you can really commit to it is if it fits within what you're already doing. So play to your strengths. If you're you know, a niche magazine, you're going to have access to certain people who, who your audience are going to want to hear to. So make sure it fits with whatever else you're doing. Once you've got going, then yeah, maybe cool. You can start doing some different things. Uh, someone somewhere will be interested in the money. They'll want to know how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and, and what's not going to happen. So you need to make sure it's easily committed to. 
with us starting our own podcast here at the association, I've struggled with that because it's the one more thing, trying to get something going and fitting it into our workflow and even just trying to figure out topics and guests and so on. So yeah. I can totally but, but agree with that. I would say, though, you know, the conversation we're having, you, you very kindly sort of gave me an idea about what we we're going to talk about, which is really useful because it does mean that the conversation hopefully can be recorded in 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 one shot and without a whole bunch of editing and that is going to really smooth your editorial process so when we're doing our interviews we always try and have a pre-chat with whoever we are talking to so just get them on the phone for five minutes say hey look so we're doing this thing a do you know what a podcast is b do you know what we're trying to achieve and how long we're going to need you for does the tech work so they're kind of you know not stressed about whether they have to press a button or anything like that and you know this these are the rough areas that we'd like to talk about so just so you know which direction we're going to and that really really helps to make sure that you get a smooth end products and you don't have to spend five hours getting someone to edit it through if, if you've got that conversation sort of the rough bones of it already sorted out then you're going to have a much better and easier production process absolutely how often do you rework your podcast to keep it fresh over the years we've introduced new formats and tried to do things differently that's really beneficial and particularly in recent years um when we started to see a real ramping up of interest and enthusiasm for the for the content we're putting out we've had to really think about what we're doing and the, and the way we're approaching things so we've started introducing multi-part series sort of long-form investigations eight or nine parts multiple interviews with people so we're talking much higher production values and obviously you're going to have to invest a lot more time in that and we need more people who are who are dedicated to doing that to be able to achieve that sort of end they play really well with our core audience they really like them so we did one on on the famous princes in the tower which is a famous episode from from english history and, and one on the salem witch trials the end of rome britain you know big interesting topics that we can sort of really get our teeth into that's proving really good but also one of the things we've done uh, in lockdown was to really invite the audience into the conversation we're trying to do so we've developed user generated content so every weekend we do one of these every you want to know Episodes, which is basically where we pick a big topic let's say the black death we find a big expert a leading expert in the topic and then we go to our audience to our listeners and to our social media um, followers and we say hey what questions would you like answered on this topic we'll get hundreds of them so we have to drill it down in, into a curated list and we go through those and that gives a really nice um uh, sort of broad introduction to the topic but then also some sort of slightly niche off offbeat questions as well and we name the people who've asked the question. So they're getting a name check, which really helps. And it starts to build that community feel. So that's a completely different proposition to what we were doing before and has worked really well. And those those episodes are often the most popular of the week. So a success as well. I know with magazines, there's a lot of talk about audience engagement because that usually follows the numbers as well. The, the number of people who might listen to your podcast or read your magazine. Podcasting can be a very personal experience people are listening to podcasts they're they're allowing you directly into their head aren't they whether they're doing the washing up or walking the dog or whatever you have a pretty direct access to their brain through through the headphones and they may be with you for half an hour for an hour even on a daily basis so there's a space there for getting quite a good interaction with with them and i think if you're trying to build your audience interaction in any way as a print magazine as a as a website whatever then it's a really good way to start having a conversation with people particularly if you invite them in if you do things which allows them to be part of that conversation so i think there's a really big opportunity there for building the community and it's and it's particularly the case with podcasts 
What techniques do you use to incorporate more diverse points of view? So this is difficult. I mean, if anyone says to you, oh, we've, we've nailed diversity and, and that's something, then they're wrong. And, and we, you know, it's an area obviously we're, we're focusing on as, as a company, immediate media, the, the, the broader company I work for, is it's a big aim of, of the company, but specifically within our portfolio as well, it's a real thing we try and think about. So every editorial meeting that we have, and we have a weekly podcast meeting on top of our, our other print and, and web meetings as well, we're thinking about diversity and we're thinking about it from two sides from the contributors, from the people we're interviewing, um, to think whether we've got a good mix of people from a diverse range of backgrounds, which can be challenging in history, actually, in terms of the sort of people you have access to, particularly in, in, the, in the British environment. Often in the academic world, it's quite a, a traditional world. So um, you have to sort of look outside of the sort of traditional places to find good speakers. But then we're also thinking about the topics we're covering and thinking, can we go beyond the obvious subject areas? and the obvious way of treating things. So we are working hard on that. It's, it's an area that we actively think about and we will assess what we're doing on a week, you know, monthly basis and just look back and say, well, how did we do? You know, what did we cover enough topics? Did we get enough diverse voices in? Sort of the big advantage we've got, I guess, we've got six episodes a week. So we've got a lot of opportunities to cover different topics. And we've also got a diverse range of voices on the interview side of things as well. So the, the podcast is produced not by one person, not just by me, the first few and then and then my colleagues are getting involved as well so we've got place of maybe 10 or 12 people who are doing the interviews from across the the BBC History Magazine and History Extra editorial team so it's not one person every time it's people with different views different backgrounds different voices so we've got we've got those different voices coming in and that does mean that we get a decent amount of diversity but I wouldn't in any way say oh yeah we, we've we've got this absolutely right because I think there's always there's a lot more work to do and particularly in the world of history it's a big topic. It's a big conversation piece and there's lots, lots of work to be done. We do work quite often with external award schemes, such as the Dan David Prize and, and the Cundall Prize, which Canadian listeners might be familiar with, uh, to help us sort of move out of our British way of thinking. So the podcast is produced by a British team. We're based in the southwest of England. You come with with certain baggage, don't you? But what by working with those guys, which are often based elsewhere and looking specifically for certain things, you know, particular global history topics, it just forces our hand and enables us to speak to different topics. So we get lots of different voices in, but I wouldn't I would say we're on top of it. I've been speaking with Dr. David Musgrove, published author, medieval landscape archaeologist, researcher and content director of the extremely popular History Extra podcast on BBC, as well as BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. You can listen to these podcasts at historyextra.com. about Canada's National Observer's Race Against Climate Change podcast? Here's an excerpt from episode one featuring Linda Solomon Wood speaking with Lenora Newman. Yeah, most people like me for radio and podcasts because yeah. <laughs> 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 also live events with lots of old people. I'm very popular. This is Lenore Newman. In general, I'm insanely loud. She has a Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment, and she's the director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley. I research food and agriculture, especially looking at how agricultural technology can address climate change. She sat down with the founder and editor-in-chief of Canada's National Observer, Linda Solomon Wood. 
Here's part of that conversation. We have nine years to cut our emissions in half. So how does food play into that? Food is actually the biggest piece of the puzzle by far. We've really underestimated the climate impact of the food system. It's a good news, bad news story. And the bad news is um, the impact of the food system is extremely large. Just as an example, our latest estimate suggests that um, the cattle industry alone might be 6% of the global total, which is kind of unimaginable. Now, the good news is because the food system is so big, it takes up 40% of the Earth's land surface that isn't glaciated. So 40%. The good news, it's so big and so inefficient that we could return even, say, 20% of that land to uh, to wilderness that would have a massive impact and it can actually be a climate positive and in a perfect world the food system should be sinking carbon so returning 20 percent of the land to nature you make that kind of sound possible but really is it oh it's totally possible and it's required part of the reason it's required is we're seeing this ramp up of impact of the food system because all around the world, people are moving more toward diets that look like the North American diet that are heavy in animal proteins. People uh, are wanting more meat. And what we know is we can't scale our system to feed everyone the way we eat. What we need to do is overhaul the whole food system globally. And I really do believe it could be massively smaller in climate impact, water impact, and land impact. And I think that will be necessary. That's really promising. So I'd I'd like to know, you know, the first thing I think about is what are governments doing? What is Canada doing? You know, I really see this from a theoretical standpoint as a holy trinity in that uh, first thing we have to do is massively lower the amount of animal protein we're using in the system. We know this. I mean, it's it's the biggest part of the climate footprint of the food system. And Canada is a real potential winner because we produce so much plant-based material. I mean, we're one of the world's biggest producers of crops such as oats and peas and all the things that go into plant-based proteins. So that plant-based shift should be a real win for Canada. And the Canadian government has been supporting that. And there's been a lot more talk lately about regenerative agriculture for what's left and looking at grass-fed animals rather than grain-fed. Where we do have animals in the system, we want them to be part of an ecosystem. But it means there'll be much less of them, which is why you need the first thing. You need the plant-based proteins so you can drastically downsize the animal side. That was Lenore Newman, the Canada Research Chair in Food Security and the Environment and Director of the Food and Agriculture Institute at the University of the Fraser Valley, speaking with Linda Solomon Wood in Episode 1 of Race Against Climate Change. Linda Solomon Wood is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of Canada's National Observer, an award-winning online news magazine based in Vancouver. Today, we talk with Linda about Canada's National Observer's podcast series, race against climate change. Why did CNO decide to produce a podcast series on climate change? Covering climate change is our mission and mandate. 
And we really wanted to reach new audiences through the podcast platform. What were some of the things that you struggled with in making this podcast? Primary thing we struggled with in making this podcast was how to take on an issue that has so much in it that can be depressing and dark to frame it in a way that people would not get just totally bummed out listening to it and that we would be able to really spend a lot of time going pretty deep into where Canada is really winning in the race against climate change and the effort to achieve net zero by 2030. We really wanted it to have an appeal to younger people who may have turned away from this whole issue and to leave people with a sense of empowerment and feeling inspired. That makes perfect sense. It's something that you would want to tackle in a new series on climate change. Which of the six episodes did you like best? They were all really fantastic, but I loved the first one, which was about food. You know, I was really surprised when I first found out how huge an impact agriculture and food has on our carbon footprint. I only found it out when I met our guest for that podcast, Lenore Newman, when I was flying from Toronto to Vancouver. And I happened to sit by her partner on the airplane. I saw that she was reading The Walrus. And I was like, oh, The Walrus. And we got talking. I introduced myself and she's like, oh, you're Linda Solomon from National Observer. And I was like, oh, my God, this is actually a National Observer reader, too. I told her how bad I felt that my job was requiring me to get on an airplane when carbon and airplanes was such a huge problem. And she said, oh, yeah, but, you know, my partner and I really think food is the problem. What? So that just opened up a huge conversation. And then Lenora came back. She was at the front of the plane. And she is just this outsized personality with the best laugh you've ever heard. And so she was our guest, and it just made everything nice on that podcast. She did. As in so many things, it really is not about us as consumers, although that's great. Whatever we do can make a difference. It's really the institutional problems, and, and that's how Lenore sees it. It's food systems, and it's transportation systems, and it's how we're doing agriculture. Anyway, it's so interesting, and we got her right after, right in the midst of the heat, though. You know, we laughed to keep from crying, but there was a lot of laughter on that podcast. Well, it really comes through. What distinguishes Race Against Climate Change from other podcasts on these topics? What really distinguished this podcast was the youthfulness of the hosts. I mean, I was there and I did some interviews, but really it was Shadir Tashidi and Polly Legere who just carried this podcast. They're young. Their voices were really fresh. Their perspectives were fresh. And I heard people, you know, even from CBC, just going, wow, this is really good. That's excellent. So yeah. uh, what was the response to this podcast when you published it? It was really a huge hit with our readers, for sure. There was one point where it came close to the top of the charts in Canada. As you probably know, we were nominated along with CBC and the Globe and Mail for Best Climate Solutions Reporting in Canada. <clears throat> we didn't okay. win. I think we should have won. <laughs> well, congrats anyway. We so. were, the nomination was pretty cool. It was the Canadian Journalism Foundation 
the sea race against climate change up against the CBC and Globe and Mail. It was done on a shoestring compared to what CBC podcast budget would be. Public broadcasters like CBC and BBC, they definitely have deeper pockets for sure. Hmm. Are you planning to do more podcasts? We are going in big. We have one coming out beginning of August called The Salmon People with Sandra Bartlett. It's an eight-part series. It really focuses a lot on Alexandra Morton's story, which has been told a number of times, but this is told in quite an amazing way. It's documentary style, and we're really looking at how have things gone so wrong in British Columbia with wild salmon when we knew that there was a problem. And then we have four more coming on in the fall. I'm really excited about the one we have with Max Fawcett because Max is such a popular columnist at National Observer. And so he'll be podcasting bi-weekly. And then David Mackay, our incredible deputy managing editor who's spent years at CBC, is going to be doing like this week on National Observer with our team. I'll be continuing with my conversations with interesting people as a podcast. Wow, you really are going quite bullish on podcasting. That's terrific. I love podcasting because it's so intimate. I've always wanted to communicate to people that what you see on the website is only there because of these amazing people that are behind it. And I get to know all these amazing people and I hear their real voices and, you know, I know their stories and I know the story behind the story. I'm so excited about the ways that podcasting allows us to be more real for our audiences and for us to have that more intimate relationship with our audiences. So I, I think it's very exciting. Any tips for magazines who are thinking of creating a podcast? The first tip is, like everything, it's not as easy as it looks. (laughs) Yeah, I know that one. It takes time. You can't expect to do a podcast and then, you know, we're launching and millions of people are going to come and listen to our first podcast. Like everything else that we've all done in this industry, and particularly those of us that have started something new in recent history, It just takes a while and it takes persistence and you really have to build your audience. So that's my first tip is be patient and be persistent. That's my second tip. I've been speaking with Linda Solomon Wood, founder, publisher and editor in chief of Canada's National Observer and an award winning reporter. It's now time for news and information for the Canadian magazine industry. Here's Asma Sheikh, Project Coordinator at the Magazine Association of BC. Hi folks! First of all, I have some news and updates about Access Copyright. Its largest project this year has been the new Access Copyright Foundation website. The improvements are geared towards making information on grants more accessible. Check out acfoundation.ca. AC has also launched a new platform called Imprimo. This platform helps visual artists create a profile, showcase their work, and ensure appropriate attribution wherever their work ends up being used. Imprimo is also conceived as a space for art lovers to explore and enjoy the work of Canadian artists from across the country. You can check out the platform at imprimo.ca. In other news, you might have come across print and online ads for MaxBC's promotional campaign for our members. We have a magazine for that. Ring a bell? 
Between March and August this year, we have been running a campaign to raise awareness of BC magazines. Our goal for this campaign is to be the first step in a long-term plan to help our members become more sustainable through increased reader engagement, subscriptions, memberships, advertising, and donations. You can go to our website, maxbc.com, to check out the campaign and all it has to offer. There, you can read featured content from our members on a variety of topics, from award-winning stories and cold water cures, to cars and farms, to family and immigration, and much, much more. No matter your tastes, I guarantee you will find a magazine that piques your interest. If you're interested in full magazine issues, we also have a number of digital sample packs on sale. Are you an aspiring writer, an environmentalist, a designer? Are you a thrill seeker? We've got a sample pack that will satisfy your curiosity. And if you want to give your eyes a break, check out the other episodes of our podcast. We speak with magazine professionals and host readings by awesome BC content creators. You'll be able to hear from award-winning writer Carly Baker, the Thai managing editor Andrea Bennett, multidisciplinary artist Adele Arop, science journalist Lisa Cadane, and many more. You'll find all of this on our website, magsbc.com. You can also follow us on social media for more news and content. And the campaign's not the only thing we've got cooking. Speaking of non-traditional magazine media, did you know MaxBC also has a YouTube channel? We've got videos on a lot of professional development topics, such as magazine editing, digital ads, current trends, and exporting strategies. Check them out on YouTube. Look for the channel Magazines BC. For this episode of iHeart Magazines. If you want to know more, head to the news section of our website, magsbc.com slash news, where you can also find links to our YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram channels. If you like what you hear, please hit like or follow on your podcast app. If you use Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a review. It helps others find the show. iHeart Magazines is made possible thanks to the financial support from the Government of Canada and Creative BC. Production guidance by Sarah Hoyles, theme music by Yuri Semshusin of Coma Media in Ukraine, news and updates music by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech in New York City, and this episode was hosted by me, Sylvia Skeen, Executive Director of the Magazine Association of BC. Thanks for listening.